Hi, everyone. I'm Mike Taylor, co-host of A Positive Jam, a podcast about one of my favorite albums, The Hold Steady's 2004 debut, The Hold Steady Almost Killed Me. This podcast is named after the title of Almost Killed Me's first track, Positive Jam. For this episode, I'm joining my co-host Daniel Schwartzman and our guest, Matt Brooks, to discuss this song. For your reference, Daniel sounds like this. I remember this standing out. And Matt sounds like this. Here's sort of our vibe. Here's what you need to know about Positive Jam, the song. As much as any single track can set the agenda for a band's entire career, Positive Jam does that for the Hold Steady. It's a century-spanning, world-historical evaluation of who we are. The we being Hold Steady lead singer and lyricist Craig Finn, as well as the band and their audience all together. Positive Jam is the thematic springboard for a total of seven studio albums, a 16-year career, and an unbelievably devoted fan base. Positive Jam is an obviously great warm-up track and a useful philosophical intro to the Hold Steady's universe. But is it a great song on its own terms? There's one thing we know for sure. This song sets the Hold Steady apart as a creative force. I hope you'll enjoy the discussion. Woke up in the 20s and there were floppers and fruits and white suits. And it was right before the crash. Positive Jam. The Hold Steady kicks off their career with this track. Mike, we're talking, this is your introduction to the band. How did it hit you the first time you heard it? I was visiting some friends at Harvard up in Cambridge. Part of a long wintry weekend with a lot of partying. There was some dance at the, I don't know, student union one night. And then we went to a party at the Harvard co-op, which is like this Harvard's version of like a hippie group home with like 30 people in it and is some giant house out in Cambridge. And one of my buddies was living at the co-op and we go into his room and we're just hanging out and talking and he goes, he's from Minneapolis and he goes, so there's this band that's from my town. They just came out with this new album and he puts on Almost Killed Me. This song comes on and I'm like, what? This guy's like not singing, but he's also not screaming. He's just kind of talk yelling. And it seems a little like amateur hour. Nothing interesting is happening really. And I'm not here for like spoken word albums. So I'm not really into this. And then the guitars kick in and it reaches this crescendo. And I'm like, huh. But I kind of just file it away for later and it wasn't for another like six months when I came back to the band that I sort of came to appreciate this song. So I wonder if maybe it is this intro that lets you in, but I wonder if almost if you need to be more familiar with the rest of the album for the intro to have an impact on you. Cause coming into it cold, I was like, this is going to be an acquired taste at best. I found so my friends from the website I had just started writing for had sent this to me. I can't remember if you could actually send files through Instant Messenger at that time or if they sent me a link to Mediafire or whatever the file sharing was in 2004. But <laughs> I remember this standing out because it was different. Obviously, 
it flows right into the tracks to come and there's a lot of hard rock and roll, but there was something, there's something to me about, you know how if you throw a day in the title, it catches your attention or a day in the song, the way Friday I'm in love or whatever. Like there's something so obvious about that, but it's a hook. It's the same way here with the specific references in the imbuing of history and sort of running through time. It gives a feeling of heft to it and of difference and of thoughtfulness that I think did catch me from the get-go. And there was something, it's a bold move. It's it's an overture. It sort of introduces the themes that the whole city cares about. And you have to, if I had done this, for example, at the beat, you know, thinking I was a musician, if I had tried to do something like this, it would have been overwrought and emo-y and just kind of lame. But there's something, they pull it off here. Maybe it's because they bring in those guitars at the end. But there's something, the references are smart. They're not quite funny, but they're just, there's enough there that there's something that has you interested. It's opening the door. It's sort of, that's what it is, really. It's opening the door, and all of a sudden you're peeking in, you're like, should I go in? And to me, it was enough to, obviously, again, they hit you pretty quickly after this song, but to me... There was something that did stand out about a positive jam beyond we can get into everything they're trying to do here. But it does to me, it it was a pretty strong hook because it was not a typical A.B. song. So two quick follow ups. First, days of the week are like a grabber for you. Tell me about the days of the week being important part of song titles. It's. A gr- it's that was sort of a cheesier example of that, but yeah, it, it does. You, you think of how many hits. I don't remember when that silly song, Rebecca Black, was the one who had this sort of viral Friday song. Gonna have a ball today. Tomorrow is Saturday, and Sunday comes after. something about you turn these obviously recognizable things into a song and it's a familiar hook but then you present Uh, it slightly differently a shared experience thank you so that's where i think so the positive jam starts in the 20s and goes all the way up to the year 2000 so it's 80 years of american history and maybe that's what i before the podcast started recording we were talking i was talking about how it's like a philosophical a point of view establisher establishes a point of view and i think maybe one of the reasons it's effective in that regard saying we woke up in the 20s we woke up on bloody carpets in the 70s all that stuff is like these are the things that everybody knows about that i am choosing to focus on and that this band is choosing to focus on is these sort of historical broad concepts My second thing, Daniel, I think tied into that. So maybe, Matt, let's just move on to your point of view here. Well, I'm approaching this from a little different perspective than you guys, because my introduction to the Hold Steady was more Separation Sunday focused. And so I had to backtrack to really dig my teeth into Almost Killed Me. And Positive Jam was not one of the first or even second wave of songs I heard by the Hold Steady. So for me, it was more like I already know what the sound is. I already know what the style is and I already know what the lyrical 
structure is. And so this is sort of, I was able to sort of contextualize it within that construct of, okay, this is how things are, are being done by Craig and by this band. And now I can hear pieces of this in their first track that they put out to sort of just say, here, here's what we're going to be about. Here's what we're going to try to do. Here's sort of our vibe. I can get into this a little bit more later, but there's this 2014 Vulture interview where Craig and, and Tad are both talking about their favorite songs on each album. And in reference to Positive Jam, Tad says, this is what we're going to do. You're either a part of this or you're not. And it would be cooler if you were part of this. And so there is sort of that feel to this is like, all right, we're here we're going to lay a bunch of stuff out here. It's a little weird. It's a little different. Structurally, it's not what you're used to in terms of a rock and roll song. But let's just go. And we're the hold steady. So rock on. I really like that, Tad. That's so inclusive. Either you're with us or you're not. But you should come, come on along. That's sort of a very hold steady. That tension is sort of, that's a microcosm of the whole thing. Of them being punky and kind of snarling at you, but then giving you like a big old hug. That adversarial versus welcoming thing. Taddy seems like such a melt. It'd be cooler if uh, if you joined us. That's <laughs> pretty affable. Well, this was in 2014. Maybe maybe when the album came out, they were like, get on board or get the hell out of the way. They were like, F this. Yeah, because there's a lot. This album's pretty fiercely defining itself in opposition to a lot of cultural forces like sniffling indie kids and all clever kids. Not very inclusive, positive jam. I don't think of it. Not even the most positive of positive jams either. That's the other part. Yeah, it's an irony. I one time tried to convince Daniel that positive jam was not a positive song. And he he took the other side. I I think there's some irony in the title, but given in hindsight, I guess you would call it positive because that's where they by the album stay positive. It's clear that that's that's authentically meant and not ironically meant. A positive jam is brought to you by Retro Gear Shop. Retro Gear Shop offers a unique selection of high-end musical instruments, recording equipment, and audio gear, and is sold to everyone from Pete Townsend to Arcade Fire to Wilco and more. Check out Retro Gear Shop at RetroGearShop.com and see why it's the premier high-end musical gear shop. Retro Gear Shop! It's a mission statement, it's a thesis statement, overture, like they introduce characters in terms of, or themes, right, in terms of the clever kids, in terms of certain phrases that they use, pestilence and war. And I think the positive side is that they're setting up that things have often been not great. And this is coming out in 2004, where we are in the post 9-11 war cycle, and we're in a weird time musically there's we keep saying they're they're sort of saying what they're standing for and i think it is meant to be a despite it all we're going to create something we're going to build something here so that's what i think is the positive side what i think is funny is that for all that introduction of themes they don't really come back to all the historical stuff in their the rest of their work, except I don't know if they go back to the Kennedys or whatever, and the 60s, eventually they get to John Berryman or whatever else, but they really don't. They set up this really, we talk a lot about the idea of a 
the spectrum between the Billy Joel side of the Hold Steady's influences and the Bruce Springsteen side, the sort of more populist, piano-driven stuff, and the harder, heavy Led Zeppelin, ACDC, guitar, crunchy stuff. And the music here is very crunchy. The lyrics here are sort of Billy Joel-esque in terms of, you think of, we didn't start the fire and all, you know. (laughs) (laughs) This is our generation's we didn't start the fire. Or it's the end of the world as we know it. Wow. mm, It's like you can't deny that analogy. And yet I really want to deny that analogy. (laughs) I want this song to have nothing to do with we didn't start the fire. I don't, yeah, it's a little bit of a stretch. There's some parallels, but it's not really, I don't think it's set out, setting out to do the same, the same thing. I, I can retract the general. I just think it's interesting that they bring out all these historical themes. And I was, an, was and still am a nerd and was and still am a history nerd. And so uh, that was also, I guess, part of what caught my ear. I was like, oh, cool. This is like, this is going to have importance and heft. And then again, they sort of don't. They will go back to pop culture, but it, it gets, they get a lot lighter in terms of their history stuff through the rest, even if they're going back to the pop stuff. Daniel, are you familiar with like the Lord of the Rings or the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Lord of the Rings, not so much Marvel. So at the beginning of Lord of the Rings and at the beginning of Marvel movies, there's kind of this big sweeping backgrounder where there's some narrator who comes in and goes eons ago an evil force created a ring and this ring had all this power in it and this power could be used for evil and then i guess the evil force lost the ring and yada 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 some weird gray guy that looks like et finds it fast forward a couple of centuries and here we are now and then the the movie which is the actual work of art doesn't go back to that setup story It just, the characters interact in that environment. They interact because of the circumstances that led up to the story we're actually telling. And that's kind of how I would explain Positive Jam. It's basically Craig Finn telling you who Sauron is and who the the ring is, or for the Marvel people, the Tesseract. I don't know. Anyway, it's that thing at the beginning of the movie where they usually they start with a galaxy and then they zoom in on a planet and then they zoom in on a guy like holding the MacGuffin of the movie. Yeah, this is the the Star Wars title scenes. Long ago in a galaxy far, far away. Yeah, I think it's kind of a device in that way. And that's maybe why you thematically get gestures at this at the beginning, but it isn't a constraint for the lyrical content. I agree. I think it does give you a sense of who this guy is going to be in terms of, or who this band is going to be, but Craig is a lyricist specifically in terms of he's not going to be speaking in generalities. He's going to use a lot of proper nouns. He's going to use a lot of things from the collective life experience to peg his stories to, to peg his characters to. I think that as a habit is well established here. When this comes up on shuffle, when I'm like listening to my broad music library, sometimes I'm like, oh, yeah, but sometimes I'm like, oh, man. And I think it's because it like takes you all the way down to zero and then you have to build back up. So let's talk about the structure of the song. Starts super quiet. It builds to a crescendo. Matt, what are your observations? 
the beginning of it is just this sort of paced out march through the decades without much music going on in the background. It's just like the very subtle guitar strumming sort of behind Craig. And so for me, it's not the type of song structure that I gravitate toward typically, whether I'm shuffling through songs that I like or just listening to stuff on the side, unless I'm consuming an album in its entirety. And then you're sort of waiting for where is this going? You know, the first few times you hear the song, maybe. But then there is this sort of piece in the middle where it starts to feel more like a rock song. And then the bottom drops out and then Tad's guitar comes in. And that's really where it feels like this is rock and roll. We're getting started with something here. And then the song very quickly after that is over. So it it really does feel like it's just a taste and a throat clearing opening salvo kind of deal. How good of a song is it? I think it's a really important song within the Hold Steady's musical. It's one of their top songs, I think, that they have. But I can't imagine, and maybe this is why it was so weird back in Cambridge in 2005, that wintry, blustery night that I like didn't quite get it because it's not really a song that you can play. It's not like Smells Like Teen Spirit or something where you're just like, oh, this is this kicks ass just on its own. I don't know. I guess that's that's my question to you. Is the song a good standalone song or does it need to exist in this sort of bigger context? I think it has to be part of the context. And I think that's probably evidenced by the fact that it's not played at many of... They definitely play it live, but it's not like a staple of their set list when I've seen them, at least in the past really 10 or so years, I feel like. I think they've left it out. I feel like certain times they have. I could be wrong, but maybe maybe that just speaks to the fact that it's not usually the most memorable song on a set list that really gets people going. But I do feel like it's not a standalone song necessarily. It's a song that's attached to the rest of the album. And it's a song that's sort of attached to the rest of their catalog and that it is just this piece at the beginning. And if you played it in the, you know, toward the back end of a set, unless you're coming back for an encore or something like that, it would feel a little bit out of place maybe sometimes. That's where I think, I I think of it as fitting as when they come back to the encore, then they play this and then they give you at least one more song. That's a true rocker and then killer parties that's like my if someone asked me how does the whole study and their shows that's probably what i would say but that's interesting that maybe over time that's since i went to so many shows back years and years ago so i'm not as familiar with how they do things now that's interesting that it may not be as big of a stance reason they have more songs now but it, it's interesting that to me it was like a key important part of the show so that's an interesting perspective, Brooks. Daniel, what do you think? Well, it makes sense. I, I haven't seen them in a long time, but it makes sense that they, we keep coming with different ways to say this, but it's an establishing shot. And now that they're established, if you take it out of context, it can still be a cool song, but like you said, it kind of, if you don't bring it in the right context, it sticks out in a weirder way than it's intended to. And so... It's not as necessary to establish themselves because they have so many other tracks that they can establish themselves with. They've got other great opening tracks. They can do a lot of other things to kick off a show or to kick off whatever. And so it makes sense. It stands on its own, but there's a bit of nostalgia to that as well. And maybe that's what you're feeling. Yeah, I think that's a good... I think maybe when I hear this song, I think a lot about how much I love... There is a moment that like makes my hair stand on end. We talked about this before we start recording that when the feedback is going and 
you're waiting before they start with the really rocking out all the sniffling any kids section of the song the feedback's going and then you kind of like count out the beats and i think they make you wait for another measure or another couple seconds before they come back at you and in that space I just get like completely fired up. So in terms of like a raw emotional response, that is a very powerful moment for me and it stands out among all their songs. So I don't know if that's nostalgia driven or just cause I like know what's coming and get so fired up about it. When you're talking about establishing shots, Daniel, I thought it would be kind of funny if for every time they made a sequel to a movie, they started that movie with the same like background background like exposition narrative and then you so you have to like sit through that before you get to the movie and i guess that's kind of what including positive jam and highlighting it in 2020 would be no one wants to go back and learn about how that ring was made that ring was made a long time ago we're on to other things now it's in the volcano for heaven's sakes but some of us are big ring fans and so we like to hear the history yeah i i think it's also it is a you talk about the whole set, you talk about them trying to be a smart band. Again, there's a risk that you do something like this and you come off as trying too hard, which is maybe where I rightly drew groans for bringing up the patron saint of trying too hard, Billy Joel. But wait, don't don't go past that, because that was actually the other thing that I wanted to ask you about was this this trying too hard. Like, I want I want to understand better what you mean by that. Like what what? How does this end up falling flat and why doesn't it here? I think if you're trying, I, I Billy Joe is actually a good example of this because there'll be sometimes he's got a song. He's got a lot of songs where even the piano man, where he's, his lines are just a little bit too cute and a little bit too polished and a little bit too, I can't remember. I'm trying to think through piano man. and can't remember. There's also the angry young man where it's a very, it's a very cute setup of a character to the angry young man with his foot in his mouth and his heart in his hand he's been stabbing the back he's been misunderstood it's a comfort to know his intentions are good and he sits in a room with a lock on the door with his maps and his medals laid out on the floor and he likes to be known as the angry young man feels disingenuous inauthentic it's hard to pull off something that ambitious while retaining your being convincing that this is really how you feel or this really is a truthful thing is that kind of it yeah i think so and i think rattling off every decade as a device and rattling off these sort of historical and cultural artifacts it's very easy for that to get twee and and over the top and i think right the edge like i gotta i gotta come up with something in the 70s like what happened in the and he's just yeah it's yeah yeah i can see it peanut farmers or you know what i mean like yeah and with like with we didn't start the fire it's like i don't like he has to come up you actually like we didn't start the fire is unsuccessful because you can very easily just think like billy joel pacing around his apartment being like what rhymes with lbj like how do i get out of this how am i gonna like i need one more i have i have say say that's pretty good what else is I've got to get thalidomide into this song. How do I do it? Where does it fit? 
I got to get thalidomide into myself. Anyway, okay, I, I see your point. And when you have that strict structure of going through decade by decade, you're kind of run that risk of you shoehorning something into the structure instead of speaking freely from your spirit. And maybe that is where the cuteness can kind of become a risk from a songwriting perspective. And I think they balance that because Craig has that, he has a convincing street corner preacher vibe, but also. They, the guitars, I think, and, and the bringing in of that sort of, they do some studio trickery as far as throwing the guitar solos in the left channel and the right stereo channel at the end. And they, they make it clear that it's not just a lyric heavy guy who's in love with his own voice and who is going to pull out his full encyclopedia of knowledge from grad school or something. And that's something that I think is very important to, in an interview on the Almost Killed Me tour, Craig said something like, a lot of the bands that we were seeing just looked like guys who were out of grad school and there was no danger in them. There was no, there was no real drama in them. And not, we will talk about how that level of danger or whatever persists, but I think here there's, it's not a feeling of just rattling off things. It's a feeling of, this actually matters and it, and I'm going to convince you it matters. And then I'm going to bring my friends who also care about this. And then we're going to grab your attention so that you will stick with us for what's to come. So it's, it's a curtain raiser, but it will, it gives you just enough of a taste of what we're about. Yeah. I think the ending gets some of the, it gets you these, the same way that the lyrics introduce the, the range that they're going to tackle the guitar licks are really a reminder because 2004, they really had a mission in mind. They really wanted to, you talked about that opposition of who we are, who we're not. And they really are saying we are going to be playing these rock licks that you haven't heard in a long time. And we're going to be not fancy. We're going to be intelligent, but not fancy. Positive Jam is brought to you by Retro Gear Shop. Want to get the latest updates and news on vintage gear editions and new top-end gear for your studio? Email list at retrogearshop.com with the subject line Positive Jam and get added to the Retro Gear Shop newsletter and 10% off your next purchase of eligible items. Just email list at retrogearshop.com or go to retrogearshop.com slash pages slash contact and fill out the form with Positive Jam in the message and get 10% off your next high-end musical gear purchase from Retro Gear Shop. Retro Gear Shop! Great. I think that's a good segue into the mechanics of the song. So as we talked about, it goes through this 80 years of history. I think one of the motifs that they hit really hard here is the idea of cycles. There's booms and crashes. The us of the song, the sort of main character of the song or the protagonist of the song, keep going through and get buffered around by different historical events. 
there's a crash at the beginning of the song and there's a crash at the end of the song. So this idea of cycles, cyclicality, which we'll come back to in later episodes, is definitely something that's at play here. Structurally, you could argue that it mirrors track two, the swish, in terms of being kind of a two-parter, where it builds to a crescendo and then is over. My other main observation about it musically is that it just does a lot with a little. Those opening is just one, is just, I guess it's technically two chords. It's a D minor and then a D sus two, but you change between those chords only by moving one finger on the highest string of the guitar. So it's like the literally bare minimum you could do in terms of chord changes. They are planting a sincere anchor on simplicity and directness and straightforwardness. They create a bed with that back and forth of the sus and the it really feels like they're building even sonically it matches and i think that's something we see through the hold steady it's so easy to get grabbed by craig's lyrics and style of singing because it's unique and they're smart the lyrics and he's a great front man but they are a band and they really the music delivers on the lyrics there's a lot of word painting or there's a lot of synergy between what they're trying to say lyrically and how they play musically and i think what you're describing is the music is really in sync with the lyrics here in terms of building that sense of like you said backstory well and that gets back to your idea of like being cute and being intellectual versus being authentic and A friend of mine writes songs and he's a very, very talented musician and very skilled and precise in his execution. But he'll do things like he'll have a whole song and then you'll have an interlude where he plays my favorite things from the sound of sound of music. And it's just like, dude, quit taking detours and like making embellishments. It's actually a way for you to kind of evade the authentic expression that you're trying to get across. And I think it takes like another level of confidence for a band to just give you this very simple, straightforward opening chord. And then as the music crescendos, it's just bomb, bomb. That's it. Like you said, Daniel, the band being in sync with the feelings that are in the lyrics, that's one flag in the ground that we haven't hit yet is that not only does the band sort of stand in opposition to the sort of overly sensitive grad school-esque indie rock music that's boring and non-threatening, but that they can bring the full force of the entire project behind that. And I think that If the song is supposed to be like, this is who we are, then I think the message is extremely clear. And maybe that's the real strength of the song, even if we're not sure whether it totally stands alone as a song. It does fulfill its mission, I think, very effectively. That's where I would land on. I think there's also some clarity in in the barrenness of the structure at times i mean like the fact that the bottom just drops out and then you're waiting as mike you were saying earlier for something to come in and fill the space and then you get the two like the heavy bass 
the bass notes and then Tad's coming in with the with the guitars and the solos are, are popping in both ears. It's clever and it's smart and they're obviously extremely intentional decisions there. But there are these just like open spaces where it's sort of laid out for you to to just listen more closely and almost lean in and, and try to anticipate what's going to come next or just longing for the next or the first big chord to hit. And that is, I think, a bold move also to not bring something at the start of your first album that is more traditional sounding, that has more of a first verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse structure. The fact that it, it is stripped down and it is simple structurally in a lot of ways that does to me, that makes the clarity of the mission and the clarity of, of the lyrics resonate even more, I think. Withholding, what, deciding what not to do, big part of this. Yeah. Editing themselves. That's the, the, maybe the last point I have here is that they, 2004, were already starting to get the death of the album meme is out there. The, idea, the iPod, I think, is around by now. Napster has already been around and the idea of listening to tracks instead of album statements. The Hold Steady, very much through the beginning of their career, is an album band. Whether or not this stands on its own, it's also very clearly, we are now entering an album. We are introducing you to not only us as a band, but to this whole set of tracks. And, you know, this almost killed me. As we will discuss, it's not quite Separation Sunday in terms of trying to tell one through line narrative to a degree, but it's very much a statement of there's more to this than just piecemeal song by song music. We're a band, a real band. And we're the Hold Steady, just in case you didn't read the, the name of the band. And I reiterated <laughs> at the end of the song, just so you know. Yeah, ending a song with the name of your band is so, yeah. There's some bravado there. Or insecurity. Two sides of the same coin, I think, as the album will explore in great detail later on. Okay, I think this song rules, but it ha- it is, it's a tough one in a way. So it's an interesting entree. And I think that Brooks's point, yeah, the fact that it withholds kind of sets up what's coming next and what's coming up for us in the podcast as we go through the rest of the album. So. I think it's a great it's a great intro to their catalog. It's not the song you want to introduce your friend to the Hold Steady with. It's not the song that's going to get them on board unless they come back to it later, as Mike, your experience is evidence of, as a, a mine too. I think if I had heard this first, I also would have said, okay, yeah but coming back to it and then realizing how it puts everything else into perspective, it, it's got a lot more power to it. Realizing it's not a spoken word album is a really, <laughs> is helpful. It's an important revelation. <laughs> yeah. And just going back to this Vulture interview, when Craig's talking about this song, which he says is his favorite song on the album, he says, it's obviously our first album and I wanted to make something kind of like a declaration, a thesis statement, if you will, which is obviously what we keep talking about here. It had that line, I was bored when I didn't have a band, so I started a band. It's meant to bring everyone up to speed, like, here we are, and this is an album. The Hold Steady is here. It actually says, Hold Steady in the lyrics, you know? We're going to start it with a positive jam, is sort of self-aware, as it's our first song on our first album. So quite literally, here's our introduction. 
So he just like, yeah, he's admitting that it's not fully a song. I think that kind of answers our question about whether it totally stands alone. Basically, he is sort of saying not yes and no, which is means no, if you're asking if it totally stands alone. Yeah. Cool. All right. Thanks to Matt Brooks. Uh, you can support him by checking out the Washington Post voraciously website. And Matt's on Twitter at, at Matt Brooks WP, WP like for the Washington Post. Thanks to the Hold Steady, of course. As a disclaimer, all song clips are owned by their creators. If you like this episode, please subscribe to our feed wherever you get podcasts. Next week, we'll talk about the Switch, a sonic flag in the ground, and probably almost killed me's hardest rocking track. To get in touch with us, DM us at, at Shortman Studios on Twitter or email us at mail at shortmanstudios.com. This has been a Shortman Studios production. I'm Mike Taylor, and this is a positive jam.